Welcome to the Human Design Collective Podcast, where we explore this system as a map of our unique potential, from the mundane to the mystical. If you'd like to dive deeper into your design, we invite you to check out our ongoing foundation courses and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. In this spotlight episode, we introduce our new Living Your Design Guide program offering and address several listener questions. We explore G-Center conditioning, definition, the sacral response, and the concept of projector guidance. We also look at authority as a way of life for projectors and talk about some of the differences between melancholy and emotionality. We hope you enjoy. The big news is that we've been working on the Living Your Design Guide training program. Yeah, so we've been teaching the foundation courses for a while, Living Your Design, Rave ABCs, and Rave Cartography. And the Living Your Design Guide training program is really for people who have already taken those foundation courses, people who are really living their experiment and interested in being able to offer Living Your Design to newcomers, to people that are just learning about human design for the first time. So this is really a training for people who want to be guides and be certified with IHDS and hopefully get the opportunity to find their own way of articulating this information authentically to other people. Yeah. And I feel like just in the title itself, it tells us a lot about what it is. It's about the experiment that we're doing with this knowledge, the human design system and living your design is an experiential process of going deeper into that knowledge in the context of one's daily life, daily experience. And then the guide training program is basically preparing people to take people through that process. As you said, I think one of the prerequisites is that you're living your design yourself, or at least in the process of experimenting with that. Yeah, I'm really excited for it because... I find that when we teach living your design, it's different every time. It's always a mutative process for us. With every group that goes through, we end up trying new things and incorporating different aspects of the knowledge that are really present for us. And for me, it's an opportunity to get to refine the way I explain things and to refine my perception of things and how I can get that across to people. So the training itself, I'm excited for because it gives me a chance to get to support other people and hear from other people in terms of how they would articulate it. What kind of stories do you have to share in terms of your own experiment and what you're perceiving about it in relation to other people? I think that's really the heart of it. If you find your own words and you find your own stories and you have your own examples, it makes the transmission of it really unique and really your own and really powerful. And can you tell us a little bit more about the format or the approach we're taking here? Yeah. So most of the training will involve meeting twice a week and having one of those sessions be more of a lecture and exploration and question and answer format going over the different topics that Living Your Design covers. And then the second session will be an opportunity for participants to present their own piece in relation to whatever we're exploring. So to be able to share your own way of talking about the spleen or your own way of talking about emotional authority or your own way of describing projectors or the deconditioning process or what is the not self versus the true self. So there are conceptual aspects of it. There are very mechanical aspects of it, obviously. And it'll kind of go back and forth in that format, some kind of lecture and exploration Q&A, and then some practicum presentation from different people. And we really try to, in all of our courses, differentiate things as much as we can so that 
If you are a person who would feel better pre-recording something in your own voice, you could do that. If you'd rather write something up and present it or share it in a written format, if you'd like to just show up on the fly and see what comes out of you, all of those are options. And I think it will also give everyone the opportunity to study each other's designs and to recognize what kind of filter you are so that you know what way of teaching will work best for you and where will you really shine as a guide for other people. It's an interesting situation to be able to hold space for people in a differentiated way. You know, not everyone is going to take the information in the same way. Not everyone is going to process it the same way. And not everyone's going to teach it the same way. So it's kind of an interesting challenge to not only honor all of these different potential teaching styles, approaches within the Living Your Design Guide program itself, but also to prepare people to find their own voice, their own way, and then to support them in offering the Living Your Design workshop in a differentiated way themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I get excited about the idea of knowing a lot of different people out there who are able to offer this in a lot of different styles. I would be happy to know that, oh, there's this kind of person, you know, who has this kind of design and I know they have this kind of style and that will be perfect for somebody that I'm giving a reading to, to be able to say, you can do living your design with us, or I can suggest some other guides that might be just perfect for you given your own design. So I'm excited about that prospect of us getting to personally know a lot of other people out there that are able to offer this in a really profound and authentic way. So that's our pitch. <laughs> we just wanted to share what we've been up to. It's a big undertaking and we're excited about it. That's our current pursuit on the courses front. I thought we'd address some listener questions that I've been gathering. And thank you for those of you that have submitted those and for your patience in us addressing them. One of them has to do with how does guidance work in the relationship between defined and undefined centers? For example, does a defined G-Center guide an undefined G-Center in terms of love, identity, and direction? Or does the undefined G-Center guide the defined G-Center? What is this relationship between definition and openness or undefined centers? And how does guidance work in that dynamic? Looking at the nature of what definition is can be helpful. When we talk about definition in the design or in the body graph, we're looking at how the life force is defined and fixed into certain consistent themes and patterns. You could say an energy or a frequency that we carry with us into everything we do. And so for interacting with the outside world, we're often meeting the outside world, meeting others with our definition. That's how we influence and condition others is energetically through frequency, through our definition. If we don't have definition in a particular center, channel, or gate, then we tend to be more receptive in terms of what's coming in, the influences from the outside world. That's where the conditioning or the influence gets in. The other thing about definition that's interesting is we tend to take it for granted. We often don't realize what it is that we have because we assume that it must be like this for everyone else if it's so natural to me or so innate to me. I do have a defined G-Center. So that would represent a fixed sense of identity, fixed or specific things that I like, that I'm attracted to, a consistent sense of my way or my way of doing things, you could say. That's something that comes with part of the package as far as I'm concerned. And 
it's easy to take that for granted, thinking that, well, someone else is going to have that same consistency or same capacity. For me, with the undefined G-Center and the only gate I have hanging in there, the only dormant potential is gate 15, which can be pretty extreme, that I have a lot of range in terms of the G-Center. And I can really feel when I'm interacting with someone who has a defined G-Center, I can usually tune in pretty quickly. And especially if I get to spend some time with them and get to know them, I can usually have a pretty good sense of what they're going to like and what they're not going to like, what they're going to resonate with, what's going to appeal to their sense of style and what they naturally have an affinity for. It starts to become pretty obvious. With this question of can an undefined G-Center guide a defined G-Center In a way, I would say, no, you can't really, I don't think for me with an undefined G-Center that I can guide somebody else's sense of identity and direction, but I can recognize it. I can recognize when they seem to be operating from their own natural and healthy sense of love, direction, or identity. And if there's the opportunity, if they ask, I can offer some awareness that may guide their awareness of their own definition there. I was listening to a recent talk from Alok on mental projectors, and he said something that I found really interesting the way he described it. He said, mental projectors aren't really here for moment-by-moment decision-making all day long. In a lot of ways, the most influential part of our lives is really who we're with, because that is going to determine what kind of ride we're on. So for me as a mental projector with an undefined G-Center, it's more about me being able to recognize if someone is healthy in terms of their fixedness there. And if I like who I become when I'm with them and I enjoy the ride that I'm on in terms of their trajectory and their direction, but it would be pretty futile for me to get into a relationship with someone who's got a defined G-Center and then try to influence or redirect or have some sort of say over their preferences, their style, what they love, what they resonate with, the places they want to go. And I think that's where when we talk about this thing that with an undefined G-Center, it can be important to pay attention in relationship to where a defined G-Center takes you. And do you like those places? Because you're probably not going to be able to influence where they go and how they go there then it's really about, do you like where they go or not? Not, do you get to tell them where to go or not? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I've really learned that lesson pretty deeply. That brings up a good point in terms of definition itself, in that it's often where we have definition that we don't have choice. Yes. Which is another way of looking at it that, you know, it's kind of funny in a way, because we think that in the same way that if, we are following our strategy and authority and we have a sacral generator. We don't get to choose what our response is. Our response is our response. You either have the energy or you don't. You either resonate with it or you don't. And it's the same thing, I think, with the Defined G-Center in that I don't really choose who I am, how I identify, the things I like, you know, what resonates with me in terms of people, time, space, And so trying to change that from the outside or thinking that you're going to guide that or do something with it, you don't guide generator energy if you're a projector. It's not like you're going to change their response. All you can do is bring awareness to their response if they are open to that or they're wanting that type of input or awareness from you. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, in that way, the, the only kind of guidance you can really offer from an undefined center 
is to offer the other person the chance to recognize that they're either aligned with the no choice fixation in them or not. Right. That's really the only kind of guidance you can offer, but there's nothing in there that's really about determining what that is or how that goes. That's designed to be determined by the definition of the person themselves. It is interesting though, the piece about whether a defined G-Center can provide direction to an undefined G-Center. And I would say absolutely yes. If you look at somebody with uh, a defined G-Center, for example, on the cross of the Sphinx, we know that cross in particular is one that's very much about direction and having a deeply receptive and attuned sense of direction in both the collective and the individual frequency. I know that for me, if I encounter someone with a strong sense of direction and a defined G-center, they know where they're going. They have a sense of where they're going. And if that is aligned with me and they recognize and invite me to go along, that can certainly provide a sense of direction for me that I don't naturally have in any kind of fixed way on my own. There's a lot of identification out there with projectors being guides, but I think it's, it's something of a misconception because as we're saying, it's not really about changing what the energy's doing or guiding the response so much as it is an awareness thing. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I would say as a projector, it's not about guiding generators in terms of telling them what to do with their energy. It's really at the deepest level about recognition and the potential to be able to guide someone's awareness so that they also can recognize the truth of their own response, the truth of their own direction, the truth of their own energy, and then follow it. I think that's the kind of core foundation of what I notice most clearly in people is to me, if I can sense and recognize that they're aligned with their own nature or not. And it's not for me to go in and say, hey, you're not aligned with your nature. You need to get on track with what I perceive as your true sacral response. It's much more for me to be able to recognize it, to wait to be invited, to offer that kind of awareness. And then ideally to be able to ask the kind of question that opens up a generator's capacity to recognize their own truth for themselves. Yeah. It's almost like a dance that I think can set up to where what we're really looking for is we're looking for correctness. We're looking mm -hmm. for the truth of the response, for example, or the truth of the identity or what the person loves, the truth of the self in that way. I like what you said earlier. It really comes down to, does it work for you on a certain level? It, the response is the response. The direction is the direction. If we're talking about an undefined G-Center in relationship with a defined G-Center, do you like who you become in that relationship? Do you like the ride that you're on? Do you like this direction? Do you like where we're at? That's, I think, getting more to it. Yeah. And there was a follow-up question with this. If sacral beings have constant access to their response, which helps guide them moment by moment and day to day, what is it like for someone without the sacral response in making small decisions? Like, for example, with an emotional projector, what are the signposts or what is it like on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of working with that authority and that work type? I think one of the best answers for this came to me through not only my own experience, but also the way I've heard Peter Schober explain it in a recording from, I don't know, many years ago. But he basically said, Waiting for invitation for projectors is a pretty big level decision-making strategy. 
But in our day-to-day lives as projectors, there are going to be many things that we're going to encounter and need to make decisions about or need to move through that are not going to involve other people or they're not going to involve anybody or anything formally inviting us. So he highlighted that if you look to the authority of any projector, you will get to see, and you look to the definition, you'll get to see more about what the style of life is like for that particular projector. And it's almost like being able to operate just according to your authority as you move through your day-to-day moment-by-moment experience. So if we were going to look at an emotional projector, we'd probably say, yes, that lifestyle, when you're on your own, when you're not interacting with anybody else, when you're not making any major decisions, then it's likely going to be emotionally determined. What are you in the mood for? How do you feel? What do you feel like engaging with or looking at or exploring? When do you feel like eating? When do you feel like exercising? All those kinds of things where you get to know your own emotional chemistry enough that you have a sense of how to take care of yourself in that moment by moment flow for your life. Would you agree? Yeah. It's interesting contrast with to say it like a splenic projector, you're looking at two very different ways of being in the world, even though there's a similar pattern or signature to the aura, you've got one that's really designed to move through the world through feeling probably be a lot slower in a lot of ways, a deep experiential way of being in the world versus a splenic projector where you could say that it was a kind of lifestyle that was more spontaneous, able to turn on a dime, so to speak, or to really trust what's coming up for you in the moment. Yeah, to be moved by intuition or instinct or that moment to moment sharp awareness that tends to come from the spleen. And if we're looking at it in terms of what are some signposts then along the way, I think probably the most significant signpost in any situation is signature and not self theme. So for a projector to notice if as you're moving through your day to day life, If you are following your inner authority, then do you notice that there's a sense of kind of sweetness or a certain amount of ease, even if it involves, you know, some work that needs to be done in your day-to-day life? Do you have a sense of success, which would likely be tied to your inner authority? You know, you're successful because you're healthy or you feel successful or you feel like life is sweet because you're able to move at your own pace or or because you're able to honor your emotional self as you're going through your life versus are you going through your moment to moment life and feeling really bitter or irritable or sour or like you have a bad taste in your mouth as you're going through your days. The signature and the not self theme are really big signposts. Yeah, especially the not self theme of bitterness. Kind of reminds me of what Alakanon Diaz was saying about anger at some point as as a manifester. Once we get through our backlog of not-self themes of bitterness, anger, frustration, disappointment, and that can often look like releasing, doing a certain amount of work, healing, whatever it is, we're in a place where when these things come up, they're more fresh. We can notice them. It's like for a projector, this bitterness theme can come up in the moment as I don't like the way this tastes. There's, you know, figuratively speaking, there's this is a kind of a puts a bad taste in my mouth. I don't feel seen. I don't feel recognized. These are the same signposts that we use in bigger things in life with invitations. And, you know, I feel like they're all useful on a day-to-day level if we're in tune and we're in touch with these things. If, if we have awareness of it coming up in the moment 
in relation to something that can be a useful signpost. We also had another question come in in general about the generator strategy of waiting to respond. There are questions about what does it actually mean to wait and what does the response look like? How to identify the response? This is obviously can be a pretty big and deep subject to get into, but on a very basic level, when we talk about strategy and we talk about waiting, it's a type of mind interrupt. It's a way that we can break the mind's incessant grabbing of the wheel and trying to control and manipulate things. What about this? What about that? How is this going to work? What if I do this? What if I don't do that? And it's a process of slowing down and stopping oftenly and tuning in. And when you tune in, you're also tuning in to life. You're tuning into you know, what's actually happening in that moment. What's the truth of one's energy? Is there anyone asking? Is there actually something here going on for me? Or am I living in kind of a mental, you know, a mental construct and trying to impose that or overlay that on what's happening? And so if we start at the beginning, it's like just to slow down, stop, wait, and watch and see. I agree. I think a lot of it tends to involve getting more connected with the body, slowing down enough to actually be able to feel our own body, our own breath, our own energy. A lot of the stuff that's out there now that's made mindfulness and meditation and embodiment and somatic strategies so popular, I think is because there's real value in being connected to your body. Certainly in human design, we'll say that's where the source of the navigation intelligence is. The weight part is the opportunity to stop. A lot of people will come into design and latch on to strategy and authority and immediately want the mind wants to know, what do I do with this? How do I apply this? How do I use this? And the first piece of it is stop, stop doing, do less, wait, wait. And if you actually don't initiate, if you don't compulsively force things, if you don't operate just on pure automatic pilot and some automatic pilot might be healthy, that might be your healthy, true self moving you along. But if you give yourself the chance to stop and wait, you may get to discover that at some point, something will move you. You will be moved. Something will show up and you will feel energy in your own body becoming available to engage with it. And that's really what the response is about. But there's no amount of talking about it or thinking about it that can substitute for actually experiencing that. So I think that's the invitation of the weight part of strategy. It's an experiment. So you've kind of got to find out for yourself. People can describe it. People can, you know, we can write books about it, but it's like that old saying, you know, fingers pointing at the moon. You know, we're just giving signposts, giving a point of reference or a, a direction for discovering what the response actually looks like in the context of your life, your experience and your body. And it's not going to be the same for everybody. You can look into the mechanics of the sacral center. For example, you can see what channels are defining the sacral center and you can get more refined signposts. You can say, well, it's an abstract process or it's a logical process, or it's going to be pattern based, or it's going to be more emotionally oriented, but it's a discovery process for oneself. And so we start with the mind. We come in, we've got this logical system endlessly fascinating. There's lots to explore, but it's all pointing us back to what is our lived experience? What's our embodied experience? 
And then the last question we have today is about melancholy. And the question was, how would we make a distinction between feeling melancholy and feeling emotional? And we can look at this in the context of definition as well, where we would associate a sense of melancholy with the knowing circuit, the individual circuitry, like the 360 is the classic example of it. Or we go and we look over and we can see any of the definition that we have in the solar plexus as you know someone who's going to have a, a fairly deep, intense, and cyclical emotional nature. Yeah, I would say with the emotional cycle and the highs and lows of the emotional process, it helps to remember that the solar plexus is a motor, so it, it carries energy with it. So whether that emotional chemistry is high or low, there's energy behind it, there's a density to it. And there's a fuel in it. And you can usually feel that. Uh, we could maybe describe it as the, the pleasure pain cycle. Pain, like emotional pain, the low of it has a weight to it. And it often has emoting that goes with it. If we're looking at individuality and the root of that being in the 360 and the gate 60 in particular, which can carry a deep sense of stagnation, a deep sense of nothingness, nothing is happening, nothing new is happening. For me, that frequency of melancholy can feel like a deep emptiness or a nothingness. It's almost like the absence of any feeling. There's no inspiration. There's no creativity. There's a kind of blahness or a nothingness that comes over things. I would describe it in my experience as not being very energetic at all. It's almost like the absence of energy. Type of emptiness? or a Type of emptiness until the pulse returns. And then when the pulse returns, there's the high, there's the movement, there's the creativity, there's the inspiration, there's the empowerment. Something's coming back out. And then, of course, we can see them together. We can look at the individual emotional wave where you'd expect to have times where some of that emptiness could feel like the flat part of that pulse emotional chemistry that's kind of empty, not a lot of feeling going on, but then these moments where there's a surge, there's an emotional energetic surge of a high or a low, and it's pulse-like energetic movement. And there's some other things that come along with individuality and this potential for melancholy that I think is pretty unique to that circuitry, unique to itself. Sometimes a melancholy can come with a feeling of alienation, being isolated. I don't really fit into what's going on. I don't know. And so like you were saying, the emotional process can carry some of that, but it's going to feel different where it's, it's more about the depth and intensity of the feeling, the energy, that, that motor wave that you're describing. It's going to follow a more persistent cycle than just the absence, the, the off-on nature of the pulse that we see in the individual circuitry. It's almost like there's a different kind of consistency to it, I guess. The thing that I see from what you're saying is that I really relate to with individuality is how lonely it can be in that melancholy place. It can feel very, very isolating. Whereas sometimes when I experience emotional beings who are in a low part of their chemistry, sometimes even in their lows, maybe even often in their lows, especially if it's collective or tribal, there may be a natural movement to want to share. You know, they want to share that pain. They want to talk about it. They want to connect around the pain. They want to connect around 
their sensitivity or what's hard or what hurts. It's more social. It's more social. It can be yeah. a lot more social and in, in some of those different flavors of the emotional wave. Mm-hmm. Not so much for individual melancholy, I don't think. That's a, probably the most antisocial, which is part of what we can see with the 1222, that social antisocial function of it. It's got that solar plexus motor, but it's also got this very on-off way of interacting socially. And when it's off, when the pulse is off, when the melancholy is strong, it's usually not a time to be interacting with anyone, really, which is a protection. It's a protection and potentially something that eventually stimulates the coming back out again. What about the theme of creativity and all of that? Because I can see that going both ways. You you can get into a very creative emotional process, very expressive emotional process, where that's one of the healthiest, best ways to move that energy or to work with that energy is to to go paint or to go do something creative. We also see that element of creativity in the individual process and in this process of melancholy as well. The pulse brings something new. It's it's like the pulse of mutation. It's the pulse of something coming into the world, something being birthed in a way. Sometimes the melancholy is like the field going fallow. It's the dark time when the nutrients in a way are regenerating themselves or they're reforming. And in some ways we could even look at that as the greatest depth of the creative process is actually in the heart of the melancholy. That's when There's something new and very unique that's forming inside the individual. And when the creative pulse returns, whatever has been formulated in there will come out. Mm -hmm. So if we resist that, you know, if we resist the melancholy, if we're not in the mood, if we, we feel alienated or we feel that kind of deep nothingness coming over us, but we push ourselves to keep interacting, keep doing, keep being social trying to keep up, I think we're robbing ourselves of getting to be aligned with the natural movement of the creative process. So those were just a few of the questions that we wanted to share with you all today. We had some other questions furthering the exploration of the sacral response and the generator process. We're looking forward to releasing our next interview episode will be with Ruth Brennan, who's a generator who teaches for IHDS, and she goes pretty deeply into her own experience of the sacral response. So we hope you'll enjoy that and get to tune into that if you'd like to know more about that. And we've got a couple other episodes in the works, so we're looking forward to bringing more to you as we can and hope you're enjoying the ride. Thank you for listening to the Human Design Collective podcast. If you enjoy the show, please review us and share. You can find us at humandesigncollective.com and explore our course and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. Music for the Human Design Collective podcast is courtesy of Meg Ruby and Anders Parker. For more information, see the show notes. And please stay tuned for upcoming episodes on the same channel.